Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist Dr. Sean Castile and Extension Corn Specialist Dr. Dan Quinn. On episode number 22, we have a crop update and a special guest plant pathologist for field crops at Purdue, Darcy Telenko. The thing about tar spot, and this is why it's a problem in northern Indiana, is driven by water, is what we're seeing, is the moisture content, the the availability of water through the night is what's driving this disease. And so when you have irrigation, you're adding extra water to that field. Now on Purdue Crop Chat, here's your host, who's your Ag Today's, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer from Who's Your Ag Today. And we have the stars of the show here, Dan Quinn, Purdue Extension Corn Specialist. Hello, Dan. Hey, Eric. And Sean Castile, Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist. Sean, hello. Howdy, Eric. And we have a special guest on today's show as well, and we'll bring her in in just a few moments. But first, let's talk about these crops uh, here in Indiana, the Indiana corn and soybean crops in the latest crop progress report from USDA. Indiana corn stayed right where it was, 73% good to excellent. And Indiana soybeans dropped a little bit. Uh, to 69%. Let's talk about corn here first. Um, you know, I was on vacation and enjoying some really great weather where I was, but it sounded like it was a bit rainy here in Indiana last week. Did that have an impact on the corn crop at all? Um, I think overall in, in some spots it did. Um, you know, I think we got a little bit more increase in some flooding, particularly kind of the northern part of the state uh, driving up there. I was up there um, yesterday and just seeing a lot of uneven cornfields and just a lot of areas where we've seen some standing water. But overall, the, the corn crop has been pretty stable. I think that, that crop condition rating has been at about 73% good to excellent for you know, a couple weeks now. And overall, I think across the state, the corn is still looking pretty good. Um, just had some areas where we've had some flooding, had some standing water, so we see some uneven corn stands. Um, we'll talk about here in a second, you know, some diseases showing up that could potentially impact the corn. But overall, it looks pretty good. We've had, you know, adequate soil moisture, pretty good temperatures. You know, I think we're at about 60% silking uh, for the corn crop across the state. We've had pretty good conditions to get us through pollination. So I think pollination is going to be pretty good. I think we'll be pretty set up for, you know, good conditions moving into grain fill period. It's just whether or not we can keep that corn crop clean moving forward. And the farmers that I speak to, they're still really excited about this yeah. corn crop this year. Are you still hearing the same yeah, things? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've spent, you know, the last couple of weeks traveling around the state from the southern part all the way up to the northern part and just meeting with different farmers. And a lot of farmers have told me this is some of the best corn they've had in a long time. And even some of those spots and some of the river bottoms in the southern part of the state, and that corn still looks pretty good, even where they got a lot of that rainfall. Um, but, you know, the corn that may have some issues has been more towards that northern part of the state where they've seen that significant rainfall but overall corn still looks pretty good across the state now sean i know we we touched on this but people aren't as excited about their soybeans they're they still have a a little ways to go but uh you know i think people can get there right 
Well, I, I hope so, but it, it is looking pretty dire in some of these fields. Uh, we've had you know, the saturated conditions. We've talked about this, Dan, uh, and we actually rode together looking at a few fields, and you know we'd be side by side going to these fields and driving past, and the corn actually, and we were tall enough to, to look down in, and I was anticipating some, some holes that are just showing up, and they weren't showing up on the corn side, but the, the field right next to it, similar soils, uh, I think we're just having a tougher time, no, no doubt. I think you talked about the rating went down on the soybeans, and, and I think rightfully so. Um, these saturated conditions have just continued to deteriorate the root systems, and, and that, that deteriorates our nodules and our nitrogen supply. And so we've got these, these soybeans on a lot of fields that are just highlighter green to yellow to dead. And so they're, they're having a rough time. We can turn around, but... Um, you know, that has to count on a week like this where we are starting to dry out and then we maintain drying out without going drought status, but to have adequate moisture as we go through. And so at this point, I mean, there is some potential there, but on those fields that have that highlighter green, uh, their saturated conditions, the roots and nodules are dying, it takes time for those nodules to uh, infect, be infected and start fixing. And so if we're having, let's say, a good portion of that root mass is dead or dying, and then now we have new new growth. It'll take about four weeks for a nodule to uh, develop and start fixing nitrogen. So you know, even though we're dry this week, it's not going to be a turnaround in a day's time. It's like three to four weeks' time to get that to turn around. Whereas, let's go corn, okay, that same wet feet field, as long as there's still nitrogen there from the fertilizer uh, and those roots are growing, they're probably going to respond and be just fine. They don't have to regenerate their nitrogen supply. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the difference we're really seeing out in the field. Well, uh, Dan, you touched on it a moment ago. We're going to talk about this. You'd be a good radio host with your segue <laughs> ability. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're going to talk about diseases a little bit, and we've got a special guest here to talk about that. Darcy Talenko is here. And, Darcy, if you would first, for those who may not be familiar with you, just introduce yourself here for us. Hi. Well, I'm, yes, I'm Darcy Talenko, a field crop extension plant pathologist here at Purdue University, um, and it's good to be here. And uh, I guess it's time now to talk about the diseases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And and really, what are you seeing out there from a disease standpoint this season? Well, when we talk about diseases, you know, I just want to remind you, we have to think about the disease triangle. So we need to have the inoculum available in previous years or previous histories, the pathogens here, um, the crop, so the crop susceptibility, and then the environmental conditions. And I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the favorable environmental conditions that will favor many of the pathogens we monitor. So many of those foliar pathogens where people are trying to make a decision on a fungicide. Um, the moisture conditions that we've seen the last couple of weeks are definitely leading us down that road. Um, so if we look at corn, um, I think it's time to get out and start looking in the lower canopy of your corn. Gray leaf spot is active throughout the state. So I think if you get out there, you'll begin to see it depending on your hybrid. You know, whether there was a resistance package or not in that, that's going to determine how much uh, gray leaf spot's developing and then watching it to see if it's moving up into that upper canopy. And our goal with our fungicides is we want to protect that ear leaf and above so we can fill out that ear. Um, so again, gray leaf spot's the major one we see across the state. Um, there are, uh, we do have reports, and I've seen it yesterday, some northern corn leaf blight. So if you have northern corn leaf blight in your field or a history of that, that is uh, starting to be active, um, northern corn leaf spot in areas in northern Indiana. And then there are two other diseases we monitor closely. Um, so that would be uh, southern rust in corn, which generally, if it comes in early, affects the southern part of the state and can lead to significant yield losses, particularly in drought years. So we were worried about that. The south has seen it. It's moving up through Mississippi um, and, and headed north. Um, we do have our first report here in Indiana. I believe it's Gibson County, so southern Indiana does have some southern rust. I suspect it's in most 
most of those southern counties. So we got to be watching that. And then the other one that's gotten a lot of news in the last couple years is tar spot. And we have the right moisture conditions. That one really requires a lot of moisture at night um, to for the infection to occur. And we do have active tar spot in northern Indiana. Um, so both of those diseases we're monitoring. Um, I think it's important to get out and look for it and then make an informed decision of whether a fungicide will be beneficial. Um, from our research, for tar spot at least and what we've seen, um, getting a fungicide out there now at VTR1 is a good timing, um, but this disease does come on later and it kicks up later in the season. So we need to monitor it. You know, your fungicides are gonna provide a nice window, two to three weeks of protection. The idea is to protect that ear leaf. But if we go on and three weeks after you've put a fungicide out and the weather conditions are still conducive, then we need to think about if a second fungicide would be beneficial for that disease in particular. For our standard diseases, gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, um, generally that VTR1 application has shown the most effic efficacy against controlling those diseases. So you really need to think about that, the return on investment on your fungicides and what's available. Um, so that's a few of the things we're thinking about here uh, on the disease side of things for corn. Um, as for soybean diseases, uh, I think just get out and start scouting. We have seen a little bit of frog eye. So frog eye is one disease we would put a fungicide out to control, particularly if you have a, a variety that's susceptible. Um, so we've, we've seen some activities, so get out and scout. Um, we have seen there's a little bit of downy mildew and um, brown spot. Generally, we don't put fungicides out to control those, but they are there and active. Um, and then with the wet, the wet conditions we've had, not only are we having issues with nitrogen uptake in soybeans, but there's, they've probably caused a lot of those so, uh, soil-borne pathogens to move in. So there are reports of Phytophthora, SDS infection probably occurred, sudden death syndrome. Um, so we'll probably start seeing those symptoms later on the season once we, once we reach those stages. Um, but those diseases, we really can't do anything about them, but it's important to note them so you can make a decision next year on if you need to put a specific seed treatment out for those diseases. I'm trying to think. And the other one um, for soybeans would be white mold. Um, so if you've had a field with a history of white mold, this has been the perfect conditions, particularly in northern Indiana, for uh, white mold to develop. Um, luckily, both tar spot and white mold, there are some new apps available. So you could search them. Tar spotter is the one for tar spot, looking at those weather conditions that may be conducive for that. And then there's Sporecaster out of Wisconsin uh, that also will give you an idea of um, if the weather conditions have been conducive, if you have flowering, if the rows are closed, and then that may trigger that, yeah, fungicide may be important for protecting if you have a field that has a history of those diseases. And Sean, you were just warning us not too long ago about white mold and how that could could uh, come to be. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And so the the thing with white mold and and Darcy can elaborate on this, but you know it's about the conditions while we have flowers, and, and so all those points that are coming together with that app or the website. But in the in the the white mold world, we're talking about preventative, whereas your cercospora, uh, leaf leaf uh, foliar diseases, frog eye leaf spot. Uh, it's more okay. Are we reaching? Uh, there's not really a threshold per se, but you know, are we having conditions and the uh, observance of that? So, can you touch on, I guess, Darcy, the difference between a white mold a preventative spray versus a frog eye leaf spot spray? And then, are we talking the same fungicides, or are we talking different? And what benefit do we get out of those? Yeah. So, for for white mold, for example. Um, this pathogen, sclerotinia, requires dead tissue to get in. So that's why the flowering stages, as flowers fall off, that's the opening that the spores get into and cause the infection. So the idea is we need to be protecting and keeping those spores from getting in those infection areas. Um, so white mold has its set of uh, fungicides that are available, and I will recommend there's some good tools out there if you search 
uh, soybean foliar disease fungicide efficacy. You're going to come up with a table that we input all the information nationally on our efficacy trials. And so there's a set of fungicides that would be really good for white mold, and they may not be the ones that you want to use if you have frog eye. Now, looking at frog eye, you know, there are some thresholds been set for those um, uh, varieties that are susceptible. So if you're out scouting and you found one lesion within 20 feet in a susceptible variety at R1, that's going to say probably we need a fungicide out there at R3. Um, and then thinking about, you know, putting out protecting fungicides for soybeans, we constantly have new leaves, so we want to protect that canopy. But again, our fungicides are providing a, a, a window of protection of two to three weeks. Um, so then it's looking at that lower canopy. Are we starting to see frog eye? And will be moving up, and then you know, two weeks later, you know, you, you don't see those infections that are occurring currently. It takes a couple of weeks for those lesions to develop, and so the idea is we want to stay in front of the infection, but we don't, we can't go back in and rescue any of these crops. The fungicides aren't that, don't have that activity. So you just got to be out scouting and making the, the informed decision that yes, the disease is there in the canopy for frog eye. It's moving up. Maybe we need to put a fungicide out. Um, maybe at R3, maybe at R4 to try to get us through the end of the season. Um, we're still working on some of the um, questions on late timings of fungicides, and so I'm constantly getting fungus, you know, should we putting out a fungicide at R5 uh, for soybeans? Uh, we do have trials going on throughout the state right now trying to look at that. It just depends on the year whether I have good disease or not to give you the best answer. Um, we're also looking at it at corn. Um, when I look at tar spot and corn um, from the last year's data, Applications at R4 and R5 never caught up. It was too late. Um, they really didn't slow down the disease. Um, for tar spot and so many of our foliar diseases, we need to be going at that R1, R2, but keeping an eye on it um, if a later application occurs. But again, some of these diseases, we haven't studied the full season effect. And if we continue to be wet like 2018, maybe, a, a, you know, I'm bouncing back between soybeans and corn, but maybe a, a later application in soybeans might protect that seed quality at the end of the season as well. So I want to follow up a little bit on the, the soybean and then maybe give Dan a chance to ask one question on corn. But um, with this, so let's go white mold. You know, usually we, we talk about R1, R2, so first bloom, full bloom, prime, prime category for this. Again, if you have environmental conditions and you've got the pathogen in the past to make that preventative spray. Uh, how late could or should you go with the white mold category, knowing that as we go into R3, R4, we have developing pots, but we still have uh, blooms on there. You know, is it worth it at that point to even think about doing an R3 or I dare say even R4 uh, white mold spray? Or we've already missed the boat on those kind of fields and then you get what you get because you can't go back in time, like you said, uh, on the white mold. And then knowing that you're talking that same R3, R4 growth stage to, to switch our mindset to more of the foliar disease management? I think for our, our for white mold, we can go up to R3 when we're looking at some of that to timing and integrating the management practices. Okay. But as long as we have openings there, but once the pathogen's in, yep. we're not going to be able to clean slow it down at that point. Um, versus frog eye where there's spores moving around and it's more an individual infection where once white mold gets in, it's infecting through the whole stem of the plant. Mm. Um, then we can go in and the later sprays might be more effective. So, then so I would stay white mold between R1 and R3 would be our timings for mm. best controlling it. If you have conducive conditions sure. in your field, flowers and row closure, and you have those high humidity conditions. But then, it, then looking at frog eye or you know, foliar disease management, mainly frog eye here in Indiana, 
R3, R4 would be our timing on those fungicides, and they may be a different group of fungicides that you're looking at. I'm glad you said that because that was the next point. I was like, just to make sure if we're talking R3 for white mold, kind of the tail end of that, and like, oh, okay, let's go ahead and marry that up with uh, frog eye control, and those aren't going to be the same fungicides no, they're in most be, cases. They're most cases, be, they'll be different modes yeah. of action. And then the other note on, I'm going to note, um, frog eye is we do know we have fungicide resistance to the QOIs, the strobulurins here in Indiana. Uh, I think we've currently confirmed them in 32 of our counties. Um, so when you're looking at managing frog eye, and it's going to be a field-to-field -field basis whether that population's been selected for or not, um, we really should look for a mixed mode of action to try to control it, just to not only just rely on a single mode of action, the strobilurins, but really we should have two modes of action going out to make sure we get the protection we need. It's the same concept as we get into, into our resistant weeds anymore, right? So we need to think about it in the same way. Yeah, so I guess Darcy kind of on the topic of corn fungicides um you know travel around the state talking to a lot of folks you know corn prices are high and and folks realize that and they want to protect their investment and and kind of a big question i get a lot of times uh, even in the short period i've been here is you know multiple fungicide applications we're seeing folks that are are putting fungicide even in their starter fertilizer at the beginning of the season. We're seeing foliar fungicides, you know, at V5, V6, and then we're seeing fungicides at VTR1, and then folks asking, should we come back? And, you know, that three, four different types of fungicide because they want to protect their investment this year. I'm just just curious on your opinion on, on some of those practices and, you know, what, what you kind of recommend is, you know, is it best to just kind of stick to that one fungicide application or is there benefit to a lot of these fungicides or, or should we be cautious on some of these fungicide applications as well? So I'm going to be on the cautious side of things because as we talked about in soybeans, we do have some resistance to developing and so we need to protect our tools, right? Mm -hmm. And Gray leaf spot is a Zercospora species. That's one that you know could have the potential to develop fungicide resistance. We haven't confirmed it yet. We're evaluating populations currently. Um, so first of all, I want us to keep these products around and keep them, have them available. So I don't want everybody just going out and spraying just for the heck of it. I think you need to make an informed decision on your farm. You know, is the disease active? Are the weather conditions conducive? And make that informed decision to make a fungicide application. Most of the work that we've looked at when you combine this metadata from multiple trials across the different states, um, that one application seems to work just as well as putting out two or three applications. You're really not getting the return on investment in, in disease management side of things. And I, um, so in, in my mind, I would, I want us to hold on to our fungicides and use them as needed, um, just because I don't want. 20 years from now, we don't have money options, and we, we got fungicide resistance rampant across the country. Um, but, you know, it just depends on the, the activity. So this year, yes, the diseases are active. You should be thinking about at least putting out one fungicide application if you can find those diseases in your crop to protect that ear leaf and above. The two applications I'm really not keen on, except for when we're watching, you know, tar spot is the one where we can see it. I can see it. I've seen it in my trials where that fungicide runs out of its protection window. The disease ramps right up again. And it gets, it depends where we are in the season. If we're approaching the black layer and safe, then we may be okay with it. But if we're, we've moved in early and we've started, this is the earliest I found it here in Indiana, you know, we may need that second hit to really give us the protection through the end of the season. So I think you need to understand what pathogen you're trying to protect against and not, you know, making an informed decision, not applying it across the whole farm just, just because you think it'll 
you, the prices are up and you could, it, you know, the return isn't, will be there. And I understand that, that maybe protecting and getting one, two bushels will cover the fungicide application. But I, again, I, on the, I want to protect our products and make sure we have them available in the future. Yeah. So I, I'm not the, the corn guy, that's not my crop, but out of the curiosity, so if we're going once, one timing out there and a VTR1 or whatever you say, um, but the potential is to come back. So if it's bad enough, what fungicide class category do you go with? Is there any kind of rotation? Do you the, do the mixed uh, mode of action within corn or do you hit it with the same fungicide on the second round if you're, you need it? What's your approach there? I would suggest mixing our modes of action. So many of our products now though are going out with two modes of action, but I would think about putting out some rotating products to make sure we're not using the same selection pressure over and over again. Many of our products do come out with a mixed modes of action, so that's trying to reduce some of that selection pressure. But again, as you, we've seen in weeds, we can get those multiple um, weeds that are resistant to multiple modes of action. So I do think we need to be conscious of rotating our products. In corn and beans, generally, it's been one application has been working for us when we started using fungicides, right? Sure. But if you look at the other crops, like other vegetable crops where they're spraying five every five days, seven days, they have to rotate because they're pushing resistance in those pathogens that they're fighting. Sure. Um, so I think if we're not careful in corn and beans, we may end up in the same boat if we start doing multiple modes of act, you know, multiple applications and not switching up products and mm -hmm. continuing that selection pressure. It's a, the population already has those individuals out there that are, you know, can overcome those fungicides. It's selecting them year after year, cycle after cycle. So we have to be cautious of what we're doing and rotating those products. And just like our herbicides, the fungicide labels have the numbers in the upper corner, the QOIs or the, the DMIs are up there in the upper corner. So you can note what products are going out and, and wrote, try to rotate them through your, your system. Yeah, I guess kind of building on that a little bit with the mixed mode of actions, you know, you mentioned northern part of the state is, is heavy tar spot. That's what the farmers up there are focused on. You go to the southern part of the state, they're focused on southern rust. Um, is, you know, is it kind of the same, you know, recommendation for you to just continue to keep using mixed mode of actions for the differences between those two diseases or their mode of actions that you find that you know you need to target for southern rust that maybe you don't need to target for tar spot just to to have that those differences between those two different diseases yes well there are products that have a better activity against southern rust that may mm -hmm. that may not work in tar spot and vice versa so there are different very vari uh, variations between products I'm going to send you to our corn efficacy tables to really cross-reference those products. And I think that's the best way to look at what ratings we've given on those products, from excellent to good to poor, or it's not labeled. But you can then cross-reference. If you know your farm has tar spot and it's had tar spot the last three years, then you can look at that table and get an idea of the, the five or six major products that are available that have shown really good efficacy uh, for tar spot. And then, you know, that they may be slightly different than what we're showing for southern rust. And I'm not going to name any specific products because there's a whole assortment. And if I do, I'm going to get troubled by somebody um, but uh, there's a table available that looks at those modes of action and we can separate those modes of action and really pick out the ones that may be most beneficial to you on your farm and uh, you know one last question I have specifically on tar spot is a lot of times tar spot is kind of singled out in those irrigation fields um, guys that use irrigation oftentimes can see tar spot especially in that northern part of the state is there any thing you've seen or kind of recommendations to folks that have you know irrigation and how maybe they can handle that tar spot uh, moving forward so the thing about tar spot and this is why it's a problem in northern indiana is driven by water is what we're seeing is the moisture content the, the availability of water through the night is what's driving this disease. And so when you have irrigation, you're adding extra water to that field. And depending on the season, um, 
you know, the irrigation's either been the hot spot for tar spot under the water or opposite has occurred um, depending on what was going on the season. And so we have had fields in, in northern Indiana uh, where irrigation was applied and those corners were greener where they were drier because we've changed the disease cycle. We've added additional environmental um, factors that's pushed that disease along. Um, so we're currently trying to look at some of that moisture requirements on our irrigation. Um, the one suggestion right now would be to try to get your water out in one time. Don't split it up between the week because those are where we're going to continue to keep the leaves wet through the week. That is going to cause the disease to move into the crop canopy if we can get the water out in one time through the field and, you know, heavier uh, irrigation, mo um, what do I say, heavier irrigation moment than you know, versus splitting it, that'll help kind of let those leaves dry out. And so it's getting those leaves dry to slow the disease down. Um, but we're still working on some of that, the best timing for irrigation, um, whether we need to be irrigating at night when they're already wet from the humidity um, or, you know, those kind of things. But those are some of the questions we're, we're trying to get to. But again, sure. we're only really three years into tar spot research here in the United States. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat with Sean Castile, Dan Quinn, and your host, Eric Pfeiffer. And I want to kind of go there for a moment because it is still relatively new. Uh, talk about just the spread of tar spot. How quickly is it spreading uh, in northern Indiana? Uh, just just talk about the spread of that and how much more folks need to be looking out for it. Well, I so, so tar spot was first found here in the United States in Indiana in 2015 in, in Indiana and Illinois in small locations. We didn't think much of it. I think we were slowly building up inoculum in those sites. And then 2018, we had the perfect storm of weather conditions that pushed the disease. And once we had that, we now spread inoculum through northern Indiana. I suspect if we got out most of the fields in the northern counties of Indiana, we probably could find tar spot in all the fields. And it just depends on what hybrids they're planting, those environment, you know, what rain events they've had, how bad the disease is, is going to be. Those farms I've been on that had issues in 2018 have had issues in 2018, 2019, 20. 20 and we're finding it now in 2021. So northern Indiana is where we have the inoculum plus the weather conditions with the lake effect Michigan weather or you know Lake Michigan weather coming down. We have those long periods of dew the disease can take off. That being said we know it's gotten a lot of hype so we've made bigger efforts to look for it. Um, so my team has done a survey across the state. We can find it in almost all, all but 14 counties here in, 90, uh, in Indiana. We got in all 92 last year. The disease is there, but in central and southern Indiana, it's more like finding a needle in the haystack. Um, but we need to know that the disease is there just in case we have those conditions that might push it because of its rapid development that can occur in the crop canopy. Right now, it's mostly northern Indiana where I'm worried about it, where we've had consistent problems. Um, it is, you know, it can be present here in central and southern Indiana. We already found it um, in Vermilion County in a farm, um, so it is present. You need to be out there and looking for it. Know it's a new, new pathogen. You may not be sure what it is. P feel free to send us samples. Um, we actually do have Indiana Corn Marketing uh, funding to uh, do free samples to the Purdue Pest Diagnostic Lab. So if you question whether you have tar spot or southern rust, send the corn sample in. We'll process it for free. We'll um, get you those answers. Um, but again, right now, I'm more in northern Indiana is where we've had the continuous issues. Uh, we just need to monitor it here in central and southern Indiana, just depending on those environmental conditions. So we have had the moisture in some parts of the state where we start, we may start seeing, and if the moisture continues, it may, it may become a problem. But we'll be trying to put those words out if we're starting to see it ramp up. 
Yeah, so I guess one thing I want to kind of wrap up with is we've talked about what we can do now this season, uh, monitoring whether your apps or uh, scouting the fields. But there's a lot of issues that are popping up now that we can't do anything right now. Uh, but know that it's coming. And so I go back to saturated conditions. Uh, Dan and I were riding together last week, and I was trying to teach him a thing or two on soybeans, and I think he figured out what the crop is, but we'll work on the next step. Uh, but in that, uh, we, we saw several areas, I mean, Phytophthora, root rot, stem rot, I mean, just wiping out areas of the field, and, and so that's pretty prevalent. And, and I was even seeing blue blue fungus spores, I mean, just masses on the roots. So I'm like, okay, here we go. And I, you know, to do a field diagnosis, I told Dan this, like, all right, here's what I think it is, but I want to go in and make sure because I know Darcy's going to say, well, which one is it? And so we, we've got that confirmed on some of these sites. And so we've got fusarium out there. We've got the conditions that are wet, early vegetative growth for SDS, sun death syndrome. So what can we do with this knowledge that we're, we're gaining now? Well, I think it's important to keep those field records, right? And so make sure you get a positive confirmation of what pathogen is causing those uh, seed borne or soil borne problems in the stems or roots, and then document it for your field so you know whether, whenever, if it's next year or the, a year after, you know what you need to be coming back in. If there's a seed treatment you may want to be putting on to protect those seeds initially from some of that initial infection, um, or making a variety selection. Um, so it is important for some of these soil-borne pathogens to really make that informed, mm -hmm. you know, document what you find, know what you find, because the seed treatment for Phytophthora is different from the seed treatment for Fusarium. Yep. So you need to understand what pathogen is the bigger problem in the field, and then make that, keep that, those notes and records so you can go back to it two years from now and say, okay, this field we know was bad, SDS or bad Phytophthora, we need to either look for varieties with a little more resistant or putting on seed treatments to protect them from that because there's no catching up with a foliar fungicide for any of those diseases. Right, and like Phytophthora, for, for example, think of it in a similar line as our soybean cyst nematode. We've had uh, varietal resistance for years, but, I mean, those are being broken down within soybean cyst nematode. Same things occurring in populations of Phytophthora, right? So there's a couple different genes within the varieties that can handle that. So is there any way for a farmer or consultant to understand what um, isolate, if you will, for Phytophthora that they have? Now, the Phytophthora isolates might be more complicated to determine. Yep. Um, but you, sh you can know what, what, what varieties have you been planting year after year. What selection pressure have you put on that? Yep. What is the resistance package in those varieties? To be sh you know, can we shift in something new? Um, I think that's the best way to, and just, uh, you know, it's taking good field notes and understanding what practices we've pushed against these pathogens and then finding out if there's another management tool we might be able to implement for a future season. Right. And, and so I, I didn't mean to set you up and I was like, okay, is there a test? But I mean, that that's where we go to is like, surely there's a test for this, right? I mean, we're, that's what we're in. Let's go test everything. In some cases, we just don't have that tool. And so the other tool that we have to use is is our notes and is our brain to kind of work through, okay, where did we see Phytophthora and what varieties had I put out there? And then go back, talk to our seed dealer, okay, which which gene did we have and where did it break down? And so that we can start working through at least that level of management. Right, yeah. So for testing on those, we would have to test them across the whole assortment of different yep. varieties to see yep. what uh, population is out there and what is it resistance to. So that's, that's a long... Yep grad student to your <laughs> trial and so um, if to you want to donate we'll have a GoFundMe <laughs> account <laughs> <laughs> right and so and then uh, on a note on you did bring up a soybean cyst nematode yep. um, so for the state of Indiana we do have some funding to test fields um, so if you go to the Purdue uh, pest diagnostic lab there's a form to fill out the, the samples need to be shipped to um, 
uh, Missouri, but uh, we will cover one sample per farm. If you think you have a field that's um, having an issue with SCN, it's important to get out and test again, um, particularly because we're starting to see the, the resistance being overcome by that population as well. Yeah. I guess, and real quick for me, you mentioned in variety, you know, resistant and hybrid resistance. And, you know, we talk about tar spot is, is new. It's a new disease that's, you know, only a couple, three years old. And is there, you know, are you seeing that is there hybrid, you know, differences with responses to, to tar spot? Are seed companies kind of looking at that or maybe rating on that? Is that something you're paying attention to? Yeah, so we noted that right away, um, and we had some uh, trials out that there is a variability in hybrid susceptibility. Mm -hmm. I, uh, they, they're all changing, so we've pushed the companies to try to get evaluations. But again, it's it, they got to be in the they got to have their research sites where they have tar spot to get those good mm -hmm. evaluations. Um, we are working with a couple where I do have a one where I say it's moderately resistant compared to a susceptible, and when we in incorporate those. We don't need the additional fungicide. If, the, if we can get good resistance in our hybrids, mm. we may eliminate that ex extra need for a fungicide. So there is some of that out there. The, the companies are trying to rate them, um, but I don't know. You'll have, just have to ask your dealers if they've gotten any disease ratings on tar spot um, mm. for their different hybrids. Darcy Talenko, thank you so much for joining. I was going to call you the disease queen, but that's not a good nickname. That's a, that's <laughs> a, that's a bad, bad nickname. We need to come up with a better one for you. Uh, I'll work on that. Okay, but thank you so much for joining us here on the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. Thank you. It's been good. And guys here quickly, just uh, to wrap up, anything that you're seeing here, anything the folks need to look out here for, uh, for Sean? Yeah, I think the last one, uh, just to continue the disease side of things, is uh, the SDS is probably going to be sh starting to show up in a lot of fields here in the next two to four weeks. Uh, usually that's a disease, uh, again, infections early during vegetative growth, cool, uh, usually at least wet conditions, and, and we certainly have had that. And so when we go into pod development and seed fill, that's usually when we see it. So we, we often call it the state fair disease, and I think it's going to be there. And a little bit after that, we'll probably see it showing up. Dan, any final thoughts? Um, I think, you know, kind of the same message we've been, we talk about probably every year and we'll continue to keep talking about every year is just get out in your fields and understand what's out there. Um, use the prediction models that Darcy puts a lot of work into and the apps that they have that shows where those diseases are, where they're moving to, you know, and just get out in your fields. I know it's it's tough this time of year in corn because it's over your head and you hate walking through it and it, you know, it gets in your face. and. But, I know I hate walking yeah. through it. <laughs> but just get out in your fields and understand what diseases you have. You know, what the understand that history that you've had in the last few years and try and target those specific diseases with specific applications uh, so you can control those diseases but also, you know, preserve your economics moving forward. Dan, Sean, thank you so much for joining us here on the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. Always fun. Thanks, Eric. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extensions, Dr. Sean Castile, and Dr. Dan Quinn. Thank you for joining us for Purdue Crop Chat today, moderated by Eric Pfeiffer, and a service of Purdue University Extension and Hoosier Ag Today. Timely, relevant, credible.